seriously popular. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Lucy Letby is accused of the murder of seven babies and the attempted murder of ten others. While she was working on the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital, Letby denies all of the charges over the incidents. Lucy Letby was the only person working on the night shift. It was alleged in court that their mother was apparently told by Miss Letby, trust me, I'm a nurse. This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations, the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them. Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven infants and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. In total, there are 22 charges, all of which she denies. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail, I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week on this podcast, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. The case against Lucy Letby is that she murdered or tried to kill 17 babies while she was working as a neonatal nurse at the Countess of Chester Hospital in the northwest of England. She denies the charges. The babies in this trial are not being named for legal reasons, and the identities of their families are also being protected. They're known only as babies A to Q. Seven of the babies died. Ten survived. Each one of these babies was or is someone's son or daughter and the mums, dads and families of every baby are present in court, listening to every detail of how their child was allegedly killed or harmed. We'll be bringing you that detail as the jury is hearing it from the prosecution and defence. We're getting behind the headlines to explain far more than the news reports you'll be reading, watching and listening to. And the importance of a fair trial is paramount, so we won't be getting into anything in this podcast that the jury have not been told, because they are the 12 people who have to decide the outcome of this case. Welcome to episode 10. (music) 
So we're back, Caroline, after the Christmas break. The jury have had a few weeks off and evidence starts again with the focus on the next baby in the case, Baby H. Baby H is a baby girl who Lucy Letby is accused of attempting to murder twice in September 2015. We'll bring you the detail in next week's episode, but for this week we're joined by Mark Hanna. Now, he's one of the editors of McNay's Essential Law for Journalists. Do you want to just tell us a bit about McNay's, which is what journalists call the law bible for our profession? The McNay's book goes back to 1954, when Leonard McNay, who was worked for the Press Association as their, um, I think, special reports editor, he produced this book with others contributing to it, setting out the media law as it was at that time. And the book has continued over the decades and is now in its 26th edition. And it, and it really is a, a Bible for journalists, isn't it? I mean, when I did my training, everyone goes out and buys a copy. I mean, I've been in hearings where... I've stood up or the PA reporter stood up and said, hang on a minute, you can't hold this bail hearing in private. This is why we object. Or hang on a minute, we don't think you could, it's right that you put this reporting restriction on. We, we have a right to report this case. And everyone is like Googling McNays. McNays. <laughs> mm. I mean, you used to have one in your bag, but now everyone, or, or at your <laughs> office, but now everyone is Googling because getting up in front of a judge is pretty terrifying. Mm. So you, you want to make sure you get it right. Yeah, I, I mean, the law has got more complicated in the sense of there being more statutes passed over the years which impinge on what journalists can or, or can't do. I think my first one is about half the size of this new one that I bought over Christmas. Yeah, there's greater anonymity provision, for example, for um, victims of forced marriage and female genital mutilation, for example. Yeah. Those an, uh, anonymity laws have increased over the years. You know, Quite rightly, journalists don't object to them. But you need to know whether you're a feature writer or a court reporter or on the news desk, you need to know when a story could involve a restriction in the sense of someone's identity must be protected. So it's not just court reporters who need it, it's anyone who's involved in frontline news reporting or feature writing. In terms of how hard it is, from your perspective, to keep up with the changes, is that sort of getting easier? Are there fewer changes than there used to be? Are there more? Where are we with sort of the pace of change? I think different editions have different content to deal with. For example, when we started, Sean Harrison is the co-author. When Sean and I started this edition, it was towards the end of the pandemic. We thought not a lot would have been done because of all the pandemic. When Actually, there were a lot of changes, some of them induced by the pandemic, affecting reporting, defamation cases, privacy cases where judges lay down new principles. You always have to check the statutes in case there's been an amendment. Sometimes we discovered an amendment affecting reporting, which hasn't been announced by the government. I think it has got more onerous because there are more statutes involved. And also, media regulation has become more important. I mean, we've talked to previous guests we've had on the podcast about the kind of decline, I suppose, in court reporting. The fact that the focus has changed in a lot of media organisations, I mean, due to the fact that court reporting is quite expensive because having a reporter at, at one court all day to report on a single case when they're only producing one story a day in this kind of like 24-7 global news that we live in these days, sometimes some news desks think, well, they'd be better off sat at their desk writing four-page leads for me. Yeah, I think you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about this. In a big city in the old days, there could be you know more than one newspaper and a freelance agency, but 
the number of freelancers who attend course regularly has declined because there's no money in it for them or they retire. In terms of figures, we have, um, I don't know if any of your previous contributors have mentioned, but the Cancos Review, which was an official review of journalism, found in 2019 that um, the number of frontline journalists in the UK declined from 23,000 in 2007 to 17,000 in mm, 2019. Wow. And, and we're still swiftly declining. So that's a fall of, you know, a quarter. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In terms of journalists knowing what the law is and knowing any updates in the law and all of that. Obviously, our job as professional journalists is to follow that and make sure that we're doing the right thing, often based on what's in your book. But your book isn't governing the internet. Well, law does affect what's published on the internet. You can be fined or jailed for what you publish on the internet. One of the changes in the law is how internet publication affects uh, what can be reported. And the laws changed to some extent to cover internet publication. Judges are, are, are worried when a Crown Court trial begins uh, whether the jury will do its own research onto the internet, and juries are very firmly warned against doing their own research. So, the, yes, the book does cover the dangers of what you publish on the internet, although obviously there's a difference between what a journalist knows mm. about the law and what the man or woman in the street knows about the law they may break the law without realising they're doing it. That was the distinction I was making, really. Not that your book doesn't cover the, the internet, but doesn't probably cover the people who don't read the book or don't train as journalists or don't understand that that law is really, really important for loads of reasons. Well, people have been fined for identifying you know, victims of rape on the internet, but of course that's illegal. Yeah. yeah. So maybe schools could do a little bit more if they're doing anything at all and when they tell people about social media and the dangers of it, which, of course, are manifold, they could point out that some things are illegal. So, obviously, Mark, the podcast is covering a live trial, which is challenging and terrifying in, in joint measure <laughs> for us. It's really interesting that we're doing this summary of each week's evidence, but we're acutely aware that this is a multi-multi-million pound trial and we've got to be very careful with whatever we do to make sure that we're reporting it correctly. Just to explain to the listener for us, would you, what rules govern our reporting of a live trial, I suppose? Yeah, sure. The two main things in the forefront of the reporter's mind, apart from any particular reporting restriction about who can be identified, is the law of defamation and the law of contempt. So both of those 
laws, and there's the Defamation Act uh, 1996 and the Contempt Court Act 1991. They both require reporting of cases to be fair and accurate, and obviously accuracy is self-explanatory. Fairness means that the reader is not misled by the report as to what was said or is happening in the case at the trial. So if a reporter makes a mistake and it's a bad mistake, it could be that someone in the trial could sue them for defamation. For example, if they say someone was convicted when they're acquitted, mm-hmm. then obviously yeah. that's a terrible mistake. But just misquoting witnesses or indeed judges could mean that the witness or judge could sue for defamation because it's made them look bad and affected their reputation. Contempt is a different priority. That's to maintain the integrity of the justice process to make sure that people get fair trials, for example, and and that justice is done. If there's a bad error, the judge may well be able to remedy it by explaining to the jury, one, they shouldn't be reading media reports anyway, but if they have, then this was an error. What is the most dangerous, I think, is to write into a trial report extraneous material, something that was not said at the trial. And the trouble with a complex trial, as you know well yourself, is you have a lot of information in your head about this case, which may not be related to the jury, because it's not appropriate. They don't need to know it for the trial. And in fact, the judge have made a ruling that the jury should not know certain information, because they don't need to know it when considering their verdicts. But if you, by mistake, put that material into the trial report before the verdicts, and there's any danger that the jury either read it or could be told about it by their families or friends, then that could jeopardize the trial. And there have been instances, the most famous incident was in 2001 when a trial involving Leeds footballers was abandoned. They were accused of violence to a man of Asian heritage outside a nightclub. And the judge had ruled that no evidence should be given that this was a racial attack because he ruled that there wasn't any or strong enough evidence for that. But the Sunday Mirror, at a time when the jury was still considering its verdict, published an interview with the victim's father in which he said it was a a racist attack and that meant the trial was abandoned. It cost the Sunday Mirror quite a lot of money, didn't it? It did, yes. They were fined, uh, I think it was £75,000 contempt, but the editor resigned as a consequence, Colin Myler. So it cost him his job. And the cost of the abandoned trial, because there had to be a second trial, the cost of the first trial was over a million pounds. After that, the government passed a law, which is in the Courts Act 2003, saying that if there was serious misconduct, in effect causing a trial to be aborted, whoever had committed the serious misconduct could be required to pay the cost of the abandoned trial. We should say that the Leeds footballer, Lee Bowyer, was acquitted of, of the charges, and the other one, Jonathan Woodgate, was acquitted of the main charge, but but convicted of a fray. Are you aware of another podcast of an ongoing trial week by week like this? No, I haven't. No, because obviously, as you say, you you need good legal advice. I think it's good that you're doing it because court reporting is important. And as we've heard, it is kind of under threat because of lack of resources and for other reasons. Next week in episode 11, we'll outline the evidence the jury will hear over the next few days about Baby H. Lucy Letby denies all the charges against her. We'll also bring you the second part of Mark's interview, where he'll walk us through new rules which allow some court cases to be dealt with behind closed doors. It's causing a lot of concern and has been called an affront to open justice. So it's a really important change which Mark will explain. I'll be in court to listen to the evidence and you can read my daily reports in the mail and on Mail Plus. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com. And we'll both be back next week. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.